0: Hello, I'm Mark Foden. Welcome to The Clock and the Cat, a podcast of conversations about clocks and cats, obviously, but crucially about complexity. The Clock and the Cat explores the emerging science of complexity, ultimately to help you generate better ideas and make better decisions, whatever you're involved with. This is episode three, and I'm going to be talking with Roland Coopers about what complexity actually is. But before that, if you don't know what The Clock and the Cat is about, please do go back and listen to episode one for a seven-minute, no-messing introduction to the podcast. If you did go away, welcome back. Here I am with Roland Coopers. Roland is an independent advisor on complexity, resilience and energy transition. He's Dutch and he speaks four other languages fluently, five if you count American. Originally a theoretical physicist, he's worked in business management in AT&T, then in Shell where he's held several senior management positions. He's written books on scenario planning, resilience and complexity in the context of public policy. He's actually got another one on climate change brewing now. Roland and I have worked together on several projects, mostly to do with resilience, and in fact we co-hatched the idea of the clock and the cat a couple of years ago. Roland's an absolute whiz on complexity, and I'm sure you're going to enjoy the conversation. So, Roland, hello. Hi, Mark. I'm in the UK, but you're in Singapore.
1: What are you you up to out there? Yes. Well, I'm in Singapore to actually finish a book on complexity and climate policy that I'm uh, wrestling with. And the other thing that's interesting is Singapore's real hotbed of complexity. And I'm here a fellow at the Complexity Institute um, at one of the universities, and um, it's such an important topic for the country that they're looking at actually massively increasing the funding for the Institute because they really consider it strategic for the future of Singapore. So that's um, a really exciting time to be here.
0: Well, it is. It is exciting. Uh, I mean, you did recommend that I went to um, um... <laughs> the Complexity Institute earlier this year, and I, I had a really good time there. And it's um it, it's it's amazing how advanced they are, and uh, the, the Singapore government is in terms of um, complexity thinking. So it's a um, a good place to be to start this conversation, I think.
1: Yeah, I mean, one one of the people who's very close to the government here tells me that every single government minister can answer the question, "What is complexity?" Um, so that which, is that is cool. Yes, and probably quite rare, I would say, around the globe.
0: Yeah, I'd say it was. So uh, shall we kick off? First question, what actually is complexity,
1: Roland? Yes, well, um, you know, I think that's a a question you can answer at many different levels. But, you know, what what for me it is, it's the name of a development in Western science over the past couple of decades. And the reason that development is important and super fundamental, I think, is because it connects with an age old idea that we celebrate in literature and in art and in music um, and in nature is that everything is interconnected with everything, um, which is, you know, a wonderful image and a wonderful statement. But in our world, you actually want to give that a scientific reality. So I think that's what at its most fundamental level is what the discipline of complexity
0: is. And you often hear the word complexity in association with complex system or complex adaptive system. Where does this come from, this, this idea of the complex system and complex adaptive
1: systems? Well, what we refer to as a complex adaptive system is, is a, a number of parts, that that interact and whether there can be anything, whether it's people in an economy, birds in a bird flock, or or you know all sorts of other elements, tra- cars in a tra- in a traffic flow, um, they're all, they're independent elements and through their interaction they have some sort of collective behavior and they adapt off of each other. I think that's what we refer to as a complex adaptive system.
0: So what's the adaptive bit then? How is traffic, and let's say in a city, how is that adaptive?
1: Well, the, 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 the intuitive rendering it is, is that the whole is more than the sum of the parts. So, so that uh, what you have is you cannot understand traffic flow just from the different pieces. Um, the, the famous example is these phantom traffic jams that occur that all of a sudden, without there being too many cars on the road, you can still have a traffic jam. And that's because of the interaction and the way um, you, you get these kind of spring effects and waves that go through traffic that cause these traffic jams. So it's a collective behavior that actually isn't um, easily attributed to the, individual, to the individual elements of the system. It's not magic. You can understand it. You can model it. Um, but it's, it's, you know, it's literally in a precise way that the whole is more than the sum of the parts.
0: OK, so the, the adaptive bit might be that if these sort of phantom traffic jams occur regularly in uh, in one particular spot, drivers might choose to take a different route through the city.
1: Is that right? Yes, that's. it occurs at multiple levels. There's that. But it, in the, the, the traffic jam itself comes from because people adapt off of each other's behavior. Somebody hits the brake a little bit too hard, then the person behind them brakes in a slightly different way. So people adapt to each other and the result is that collective behavior is the phantom traffic jam. Um, it's unlikely to occur at the same spot. Right. So so you you you, you, you the next day it might be somewhere else. So,
0: so the the adaption happens at a, a sort of micro level or uh, or multiple yeah. scales or, 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 or what?
1: Yeah, at micro level and at multiple scales, depending on the system. Yes, but the, the the essential thing is that we always assume that if you know something big happens, that there must be some big cause. And in this case, in these complex systems, the wonderful thing is that that's not necessarily the case. Uh, you can have these these collective properties are not really imbe- are not embedded in the individual bits. The, the, the cliché, every, every discipline has its cliché, right? And the, the cliché is bird flocks and complexity. Um, but their cliché is not without a reason, because they actually say something. So a bird flock, everybody's seen these kind of wonderful murmurations of birds over, over a, a lake in, in the early morning light. And, and uh, you see these amazing shapes that, that these birds exhibit, and yet we know two things about these birds: is there's no choreographer, and the uh, the agents in this system are the birds, and they're bird-brained, so they're not particularly smart. Um, and yet collectively they manage to do this this extraordinary thing. Now, what complexity science then does is take a computer and try to program um, and simulate a bird flock, and and through that try to explore what are, what are, what's the minimum mechanism, what's the, what's the root of this extraordinary collective behaviour. So you create a bunch of birds in a computer programme and you um, have them adapt and react to each other in really simple ways and you see whether that reproduces the flocking behaviour and it turns out that you can do that.
0: So that was one of the, uh, one of the um, original simulations, wasn't it, with that, what was it called, the Boyds?
1: Yeah, Boyd's. Yeah, it was possibly uh, um, a scientist from Boston. But, uh. <laughs> so,
0: so you can can imagine people in government and organisations struggling with uh, with complex problems, and I guess a lot of people excited about the idea of being able to model and understand what's going on better. So you know, over, over the last. 10 years or so, we've had uh, much greater computing power and we can actually do some of this. So, can you just say something about the, the modeling that you can do on complex systems and why it's different to sort of ordinary analytical modeling?
1: Yeah, I mean, so one of the essential things is that it, it really is, it helps you get a better insight into the dynamics of the system. But the one thing it probably won't help you do is predict. And, and that will be frustrating for many people because there's a whole industry of modeling that's aimed, at, of linear modeling, that aims at prediction. Um, but the essential thing about uh, complex systems is that generally you, you can't really predict how they will behave uh, precisely. You can say something about classes of behavior and, and how you might statistically influence their behavior, but prediction shouldn't be your um, your goal. and. Uh, that's a first threshold to cross for a policymaker, um, so, and, and so they might you well can... turn to somebody to somebody who who promises to um, to give them a prediction.
0: So if you can't predict, what do you get out of the modelling? You,
1: you get a much deeper understanding of of how the system works and and what you might what tweaks you might make in order to. Uh, to get it to behave differently you know a great example where we're actually there are a couple of fields not that many where complexity methodologies are really mainstream one is uh, is dealing with epidemics and and it's probably familiar to people from reading the newspaper um, if you talk about something awful like the ebola epidemic etc is that you look at contagion rate, you look at, at containing, at, at reducing the speed of the spread of an epidemic, and you can do all those things and you know that you will influence the outcome because you understand how the thing works intrinsically. What you'll never be able to say is whether uh, person X or person Y will become ill or not, um, because that's a statistical phenomenon, but, but you will be able to influence the behaviour of the whole. So,
0: so, for example, if you go back to the birds thing, you couldn't possibly predict the track of any individual bird, but you do know that they'll ex- the, the, the group as a whole will exhibit that kind of swooping, murmuring behaviour.
1: Yes, and, and you can exclude some things. You, 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 can, you can demonstrate that they will never fly in a perfect cube, for example. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, um, and you will know why. So, so there are things that you can exclude. But indeed, you know, knowing the exact uh, behavior of a particular bird or, or even the exact shape that, that the flock will take when it takes off, um, you can't know. And actually knowing what you can't know is really, really important.
0: Yeah, uh, so, just to provide some mental hooks about this modeling. So, what are what are the names of the methods, and
1: and you know what are, what are they about? Yeah, the the main method is called agent based modeling, um, and and there's a whole a whole mathemata- mathematical mathematical appara- apparatus that goes with that. Um, but in concept, it's really quite simple. It is instead of Of A traditional model if we talk about a traditional model where you write down a set of equations and you solve those equations and that will tell you What how your system will behave? Um, In this case what you do is you take a computer and uh, as with the birds You create a program where you you get the the different agents whether they're cards or birds or people in an economy or any anything else and you have them interact and you watch what happens and then you tweak the rules, and then you watch what happens. Yeah, no, it was
0: interesting when when I was in uh, Singapore in March. There was um, a demo of the the transport model, which is an agent based model, and it, um, that they had people, cars, trains all modelled and it, it was amazing to see the sort of visuals of this where a train would come into the station and a whole lot of people would uh, rush out of the station and get on buses and in taxis and, and, and so on and actually they've used it to to do modelling of problems of uh, you know a train breaking down and that kind of thing and I, I just thought it was a great great example at least visually of this, of this kind of technique. Have, have you seen that?
1: Yes, and not this particular one, but I'm aware. yeah, because crowd modeling is fun, you know, the, the movement of people, whether it's through a station or if there's an emergency in a stadium or et cetera, those are, are perfect things that, uh, that, that, that you can use these techniques for. Well one thing to be, to be aware of though is, is not to oversell the modeling capability, right? Because it's in some sense fairly simple policy problems that you can model. So, you know, the movement of people or epidemics and those kinds of things. If we look at, you know, things like an economy or climate change policy or dealing with inequality or what's the best, best health care system, you know, those things are well beyond our modelling capability. But they are still complex systems and, and treating them as non-complex systems will certainly be wrong. I
0: think the, the, there's a real drive to turn complex problems into simple ones so that you can go and solve them. So knowing the limitations of, of, of these methods seems to be really important. So, you know, good point. So, so that's agent-based modelling and the agents being the birds, the cars, the people or whatever. And so we're, we're making a model that shows the patterns of, of, of the behaviour as they interact. There's another method, uh, another modelling method called yeah. sort of network analysis. Could you say just as something about that?
1: Yeah, another way of representing, generically representing complex systems is by, by representing them as a network. And, and that's, in its, just like agent-based modeling, in many ways is quite simple. Is, is you, you, you map the, the interconnections between the different elements of a network, and uh, that unveils the structure of that, of that network and, and how it drives collective behavior. A particularly nice example that I've come across is um, I recently saw an article that people had taken the, uh, uh, the body of law of the European Union, um, which is about 50,000 laws, and had created a map of the network of those laws, so how they're interconnected. So one law is interconnected with another if it refers to it. So, so that you could imagine that you can draw this big spider diagram of which laws are interconnected which with other laws. And the fascinating thing is then when you apply some basic mathematical analysis to that network, you see that it has the same kind of properties as, as some natural systems have. Um, so that it's not just a random set of connections, but it's actually evolved in, an, in a remarkably organic way and it has particular properties.
0: So that actual the, the connect the network of the laws is, is a scale-free network? Yes. So what does that mean then?
1: <laughs> um, a, a scale-free network is kind of the, uh, the the gold standard of networks. Is is it's they're the most efficient uh, kind of networks that exist and this is why nature likes them. Um, because nature in some sense is, you know, either lazy or 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 economic if you It tries to organize things um, with the uh, least possible effort, but the greatest possible complexity. Um, And so a scale-free network is one that has uh, a bunch of big nodes and lots of of less interconnected uh, nodes. The internet is an example of a scale-free network. There are a couple of very large nodes and they're connected to a bunch of sub-nodes that are then connected to nodes that are much, have much lower connectivity.
0: So some um, nodes are more important than others. And you only discover this when you do the analysis or, or, or what?
1: Yes. Um, and one of the places, for example, where you could see how incredibly costly it is to get it wrong was in the financial crisis in 2008. You know, the world's central banks were all worried about the health of the, of the individual banks. Whereas, of course, the thing that society cares about is the health of the banking network. You don't really care if a single bank goes belly up, but you really do care if the banking network fails. After the financial crisis, there's been a, a flurry of interest from central banks to understand network, the network patterns and the networks of interconnections between banks, because what you're after is, is a topology of interconnection that's stable and more resilient to crisis than one that is not. Um, And so it's a completely different way of conceiving of a financial system is that you're not thinking about, uh, oh, as long as all my banks are healthy, it'll be great. But you're actually worried about the health of the network as opposed to the health of the individual banks.
0: Well, and that network, including the, I don't know, companies or individuals that actually have loans.
1: Well, in this case, there are, very, there are various ways of conceiving that, that network. Basically, they look at the, the base that people look at as the credit relationships between the banks. So, you know, who holds the biggest credit relationships with other banks and because that's typically where banking crises unravel when people's credit, when, they, when the banks um, have insufficient cover. So that's the primary focus.
0: So this so really, is so this is interesting. This is a, a new application. When well, I say new, in the last ten years, application of complexity thinking, um, which I, I think is really exciting. But it, it's not something that's been part of the way of doing things before that, right?
1: Well, you know, nothing is entirely. You know, if you go back uh, into the even the the research offices of the central banks you'll see some junior scientists and who, who were working on this stuff before 2008 but of course nobody listened to them <laughs> um, and afterwards they said ah we've got some people who understand this stuff and they were probably hauled into the boardroom <laughs> to explain what it was all about but uh, you know that's i think that's just the normal way the world works right is there it's it's much more diverse and pluriform in thinking but it's dominated by particular particular approaches but it doesn't mean the other approaches don't exist at the same time mm. so it's not right it's not that nobody had ever thought of it before 2008 but it certainly wasn't the job description of the central bankers and arguably it still isn't the job description of the central bankers so, so we're, we've not absorbed the lessons
0: so one of the things I, I we haven't talked about so far is this idea of emergence which is an important topic in complexity so can you talk about can you talk about emergence for a few minutes
1: yeah no it's a really important idea and um i what it des- it describes this idea that the whole is more than the sum of the parts right that there are properties of a system that that are just of that system as a whole and what's it, the the way it's described is that those properties emerge from the interaction of the agents and one particular example i came across recently which i, I found really interesting is somebody reframed the idea of of decisions in organizations, you know, you always talk about, so who's the decision maker, and you know, which minister or CEO took which decision. But that assumes that, you know, there's kind of a top down causality, somebody makes a decision and other people execute it. If you think about a complex system, you can think of decisions actually emerging from an organization through the interactions of all sorts of people. An organization functions like an information processing system that comes up with a recommendation with a a decision. And then the role of the decision maker is a very different one, is that that's the person who names and and crystallizes and formalizes the decision. So decision making then becomes identifying the emergent opinion or, or tweaking it. Uh, but the, the fundamental process is that in the interaction of the, of the organization, a decision comes out, comes about and then that's named. In a sense, the way a democracy works, right? People vote and then the result of the vote is identified by somebody and, and, and they say, well, this is the winner. And, and so these it's a it's a very different way of looking at, at these systems. I'm now focusing on decision making, but if, if the flocking behavior of uh, of birds is an emergent is called an emergent property of um, of the underlying set of birds, for example. So yeah, okay. a really important concept to get to also to get an, you know an intuitive sense of.
0: So th- this idea of decisions I'm, I'm really e- excited about because I've got a sense that I'm, I'm just thinking about an organization I worked with in the in the past there were probably dozens of times where I'd be walking down a corridor and bump into a few people having a discussion stop for a couple of minutes for a chat suddenly find you're in a 10 minute kind of quite strategic decision and then um, you suddenly realize that as a result of the conversation you've understood something and actually a decision about doing something different is created there and then that had we not bumped into each other wouldn't have happened yeah. um, and I, I think that kind of thing happens a lot in as you say the model uh, is that we write an agenda for a meeting decide all the things that need to be decided go through the go through the agenda and, and, and do it but in most organizations it simply doesn't happen
1: that way Yeah, and I think there's a difference between happening and describing, right? I think in most organizations, it actually happens bottom-up and it's an emergent process, uh, but we just don't describe it that way. And that misrepresents the, the underlying process. I suspect... I don't know for sure, but I I actually suspect if you take uh, China, for example, right, most people refer to China as, you know, an authoritarian state where decisions are all made top down. And that's why it's so easy, because you've just got a couple of people with lots of power and they run the place. I actually suspect that's the same kind of misrepresentation. Yes, it's it's a very centralized system. Uh, but I suspect that the decisions are pre cooked, and at the sa- in the same way are, are, the, you know, are endless debates between cities and state owned companies and individuals, etc. And the central person does have the power to then bless a particular decision. But seeing a system like China as a much more, decisions being much more emergent than top-down, I think is valuable and, and uh, is a much richer framing of what happens in reality. And it also gives you a sense of the constraints. They can't turn on a dime, actually, because they need to carry the system with them.
0: So the turning on a dime thing um, makes me think about the change in organizations. And, and I know that uh, lots of folks listening to this podcast are, will be interested in change in their uh, in their organizations. So it'd be really good to talk for a while about how that happens. And, um, and I'm thinking particularly the, this idea of um, uh, tipping and phase transitions.
1: Yeah. You know, there's obviously the idea of tipping point got enormous press um, through through um, this book a couple of years ago. The Gladwell book. Yes, the Gladwell book. But the, the, actually, I always think that the, the more interesting thing is what happens before the tipping point, right? Because the tipping point is the result of something that happens before. Um, and uh, you some, sometimes compare it to a pot of boiling water, right? Is at some point, the water boils, but actually, there's all sorts of stuff that happens before, so that suddenly it boils. And if you're interested in change in an organization, it's the stuff that happens before that leads to a sudden transition that you're interested in. Simply saying, oh, there was a sudden transition is actually not very interesting. So what uh, the study of complex systems help you see is what are the conditions? What are the things that happen before these sudden transitions? So first it helps you understand that sudden transitions are possible which is a huge thing, right? Because it, it, mostly we assume that everything's gradual and, and incremental and linear, etc. cetera, and having these discontinuities is not really in our vocabulary and is an uneasy thing. Uh, I think a great example is what you're seeing now around the world is these introductions of uh, the attempt to uh, reduce plastic consumption uh, in particular, throw, one use, throw away plastic bags. And this started, one of the early places where this happened was in Ireland, I think it was 2009, if I remember correctly, and there was a deal between the Ministry of Finance and the Ministry of the Environment that they would introduce a very small tax on plastic bags and it would be great for revenue for the state and the Environment Ministry would be happy because it would gradually reduce plastic bag consumption. Um, and to everybody's surprise and, and, and slight sadness in the finance department, within three months, uh, plastic bag usage had virtually disappeared. So you, you had a sudden transition. Now, wouldn't it be nice if we could do those things purposefully? I mean, it's the dream of every policymaker to make a very small change that leads to a massive uh, a, a very small intervention that leads to a massive change and you know that I think is the prize for understanding these things better is is how you can understand and how you can prepare and and when is there opportunity for these for these rapid changes
0: So the plastic bag of water was close to boiling and we just turned up the heat a bit. is that what happened?
1: I think it's more a catalyst. The, the, the language is more from biology and chemistry. and a catalyst is something you introduce in a system that creates it to, to change suddenly. I don't know if you ever tried. If you put a bottle of beer in a freezer, it'll remain liquid when you take it out. But if you knock it on the, the uh, kitchen countertop, it'll instantaneously freeze. Um, and so this is what 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 can happen in these systems is that, you know, a small pebble or a small intervention or a small shock actually then changes the state of the system. So it's not just adding a little bit of heat, it's actually the, the thing that puts it over the edge, in a sense.
0: Just to sort of talk about the catalyst thing, my understanding of this, um, a chemical catalyst is something in the inert, a kind of platform for change, if, if you like, whereas um, I understand the Um, the the thing that made the difference with the plastic bags was raising the charge. So um, raising the charge for plastic bags, for example, in supermarkets, where you're actually acting on the system, you're pulling a lever rather than nudging some different behavior.
1: You know, that's the question, right? Because, uh, you know, that's what, you know, our classical economic, Framing would lead you to believe right is you by changing the price you change the utility function of people and then they've decided to change their behavior Except that it really doesn't work that way is because around the same time as in ireland they introduced this charge and completely reduced l- eliminated plastic bags they did the same thing in the netherlands and everybody thought oh, that's cheap let me buy another pl- set of plastic bags And so, you know, people actually don't care about the couple of cents that they spend on the plastic bag. But what had happened is that in Ireland, it went together with a phase that was enough, you know, latent guilt or latent environmental consciousness that actually these plastic bags were a bad idea. And the small charge basically made the system gel to actually act upon that insight. But that had to be there before. And in a case like in the Netherlands, that wasn't there. And people just said, OK, well, if it's 10 cents for a plastic bag, that's, I'll just take two. So your
0: complexity scientists will talk about starting conditions.
1: It's the state of the network, right? This is where network theory comes in again, is if, if you understand the, the, the state of the network, you can change it. Uh, there's an initiative I think that was just launched in the UK uh, where very recently they've agreed to, to characterize obesity now as a disease rather than as lack of control and eating too much. And in fact, there are some really interesting complexity studies on obesity that really show the network effects and, and really frame it as a complex system and how there's contagion across a network and all these kinds of effects and, yes. and that allows you to then intervene in a different way
0: so there was a book i forget what it was called but i think it was um chris starkis and fowler talking about how you'd be more likely to put on weight if your friends were overweight i mean, yeah. there's a network effect going on
1: yeah there's a network effect and there's a real context effect also social um, social context also makes a huge difference Um, But it's now, you know, and and this was a big thing. This is one of those naming things like decision making is that it was understood scientifically that it's a contagious network issue. Uh, But we talked about it as if these were people lacking discipline and not being able to control their eating habits or not exercising enough. And actually now naming it as a contagious disease makes a huge difference because you can start using the policy tools that go along with that, as opposed to just moralizing or taxing or whatever you want to do.
0: So policy tools being something like um, sort of network analysis, that kind of thing
1: yeah and then you know then just like when you're dealing with a with a um, a classic epidemic you you look at contagion rates and super spreaders and which contexts you know what what are the what are the behavioral change that will have a network effect as opposed to just admonishing people to go to the gym
0: so if you're setting out on a big organizational change then um, it makes sense to try and at least start by thinking about what network effects might be in play
1: well and and first figuring out what your network is in the first place right is you know the image that people have of an organ of draw of an organization you know the, the classic fork with a ceo at the top or if they're mm. cute they they put the ceo at the bottom but you know basically this linear relationships th- that's the way we talk and we characterize we talk about and we characterize an organization but that's not what it is. I mean, certainly if you work in it, you know that that's not the reality. It's just a very small part of the reality. In fact, an organization is is a deep network. There are all sorts of cross connections. There are people who are not that senior, who have a huge influence, who may be extroverts, who may be in some position of, of high connectivity that have a disproportionate effect compared to some, you know, very introverted senior manager somewhere. And so actually understanding the thing you have as opposed to the way you describe it is a really good starting point. Right.
0: So I mean, I'm particularly interested in the sort of organizational networks. Uh, and theoretically, it's fantastic to try and understand what's going on in those networks, but getting the data. For it is actually quite hard. For example, I knew some someone who's doing some research on email data to see what emails were passed around in a in a big organization. And actually, it's really really hard to get that data.
1: Well, my understanding is once you, you have access to the email data, that's actually quite a powerful image. I mean, you need to do some filtering on it to sort of get you know the bulletins and so on out and, and to different classes of emails. But there's some really classical studies about, uh, and there, I think there's some standard tools now that allow you to map the network structure. There's an amazing paper that came out fairly recently where somebody mm-hmm. looked at all the websites of the US government, which are hundreds of thousands, and mapped the network of how they referred to each other. And this is all public information, right? And it's literally millions and millions of connections. And and it created a a map and a a network structure of of the, and it's a proxy, obviously, right? And, And you have to worry whether the proxy is a good one. But it did show, you know, which states and which cities were more interconnected than others and which organizations had influence across the country, et cetera. And so the data exists in companies in the form of email and and also, you know, in countries, as in this example, in the form of websites. And if you can get access to that raw data, it, it tells quite a rich story. And again, it's a proxy of the real thing, but at least you start asking questions about the real structure of the thing as opposed to, you know, the way everybody usually describes it.
0: And of course, you're not limited to modeling like things, like, I don't know, roles in an organization or or websites. You can connect people and organizations and laws and so on to actually get quite a a rich picture of what's going on.
1: Yeah. I and mean, the, the other thing that, that always never ceases to amaze me is that humans are actually very good at this stuff. It, yeah. is that we've created a language and, and, and a representation of systems that actually doesn't leverage the, the almost biological talent that we have. We, we lead our private lives entirely under complexity, right? It's, you know, n- nobody would think that the success of a party is this is the sum of the people that are there, the music, and the booze, right? There's something else. It's the interconnection. It's you know, there's there's whether something is a success is if there's a fabric, there's an emergent property of a good party that's created, and and this is the way we deal with our lives, and that's what as humans we're really good at. So. I think, you know, quite apart from the modeling and the science, etc., is being able to name and describe also our professional world in those terms actually enables us to bring to the job the capabilities that, that we have and, and use them better.
0: And through an understanding of complexity, there's enormous potential for improvement.
1: Yes, and, and debate, right, you know, because one of the, what I've always really found encouraging, I've worked, as you described in the introduction, in industry for a long time, and, and this is true in government as well, is it's subject to these waves of fads, and you know, somebody says, oh, everything has to be agile, or everything now has to be total quality, or these things that wash over the system. And this, in a sense, for me, this whole discipline of complexity is at least the beginning of a foundation underneath all of that, so you can understand how those things work and why they work, and and even when they're useful, because, uh, you know, these things are not useful in all circumstances. There are systems that are not complex, and and uh, you, you shouldn't use any of these tools, and you should manage them very linearly. and so it's, it, it also really helps you distinguish, uh, you know, between the the good and the bad and the fads. And, and it creates a language where you can debate and, and have a little bit more precision about what you do.
0: So that's, I think, one of the things that we try to do with the, the clock and the cat to get people to think about things that are complicated and things that are genuinely complex and to treat them differently yeah um, and i mean there's various ways of think of thinking about this but you know if you your know, typical approach to a complicated problem is to divide it into parts um, yeah. and solve the parts and put them together but that absolutely doesn't work when you've got a complex situation and knowing the difference is the knowing when things are different because our natural our natural inclination particularly in organizations is to take a an analytical reductionist approach and how how can we stop from doing that in complex situations
1: yeah I mean your use of the word natural is kind of interesting right? because yeah. I would perhaps say we do, we do that routinely but it's actually you know, as I tried to say before it's actually not natural we, our, our natural inclination <laughs> is to look no, at like these complex yeah. systems but we've been drilled I mean we've all gone to school for you know what 18 years or whatever some big number of years and we've been educated in the method of reductionism over a good portion of those years, and reductionism is fantastic. I mean, it's a, there's nothing wrong with it. It's just you need to apply it consciously and for the right things, and not as a default uh, as a default approach.
0: You know, we're kind of running out of time now, Roland. One of the things that I did want to talk about was um, this idea of re- of resilience. And you and I have worked on a, a few projects now where, we, where resilience has been the focus. So, so how are resilience and complexity connected?
1: Yeah, r- resilience only exists in a complex system. And n- non-complex systems actually don't have resilience properties. Um, and that's because if you unpack resilience, uh, you can unpack it in two things. One is robustness, which is just, you know, the ability to absorb a shock and not break. And the other thing is the ability to adapt and learn as a result of that shock. And that second thing, the adaptation and the learning is only something that complex systems can do. N- non-complex systems can be robust, You know, just build a bigger wall and a stronger wall, but that will never learn and adapt. And it's interesting d- debate, if as you know, it's, it's all over the news these days, with uh, Trump's obsession with a wall, is, is a classic case that immigration is a highly complex issue. And you know, the, 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 the last thing you want to create is, is a massive wall. You, you need a system that deals with the uh, adaptability and the resilience of immigration. You need to, to, to engage with that, with that process and, and understand how it works.
0: So the, the idea of resilience, if you have a, uh, again, thinking about this sort of organisational context, but if, if you're in a complex situation, do you always want to be thinking in terms of resilience? Is that a good way of handling complexity? Or because It seems to me that it's a much more tangible idea. Um, people, we really don't want to have complexity. However, resilience sounds like a good thing to have. Uh, is that a, um, a, a more palatable message? in this, in this No I
1: think no, I don't think so because what happens is people then confuse com- complex with the, the colloquial term of something that's messy or that you know you have a complex relationship with your brother-in-law or whatever. And, and that's a fine meaning for the word. but in this case complex with a big C actually has a different meaning and it's an unfortunate choice of word, but here we are. And so if they can't dissociate that emotion from the word, then then we have a problem, <laughs> and we do to a certain extent. But, the, the, uh, uh, but resilience is just one property of complex systems. So if, yeah, I mean, if you're interested in resilience, then if that's important for the particular organization or system you're concerned with, then that's what you should look at. But if it's, you know, if, if it's... You're, you're interested in, in whether you have a scale-free network or not, and there, you may be interested in, in path dependence. There are a number of these properties of complex systems that could be could be an area of focus. The other thing with resilience is to is to is to remember that it's not something to maximize. Right? Is you, you could have bad resilience. Right? Organized crime is super resilient, and you actually want to reduce its resilience. So. Uh, it's 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 a it's not a a property to optimize Uh, in some cases yes in some cases no but again it's just one property of a complex system so i i would counsel against saying oh forget about this complexity stuff let's just look at resilience
0: okay so that's uh, that's useful so so one last question i'd like to ask so so the idea of uh, the wicked problem has some currency at the moment is that Exactly the same as complexity? A complex problem and a wicked problem are the same?
1: Yeah, I think so. And and what's, you know, no no word has exclusivity, nor should it. But I, I think complexity, for me, is kind of the umbrella term over a whole load of things that have come before it. I mean, it's clearly not that one day people woke up and say, oh, right, complex systems. It builds on systems thinking from the 1960s and cellular automata and all sorts of ideas in biology and, and things, you know, people have written about wicked problems and, and uh, even ideas like agile and, and, and learning organizations. There are all these connected and associated concepts and it's fine to use other words if they work better but I generally tend to think of complexity as the umbrella name that describes the um, the entire field And and the reason for that is because it really is increasingly a scientific discipline with university institutes, like the institute where I am now, and, and most universities in the world now have complexity institute, there's a vast literature, and you can go to people and help you with a particular problem. And there are no professors in wicked problems, or or very few, No vocational like well, that... university has, but, well, but
0: that, it's not that, a that, discipline. That's interesting. Um, So with that, if you're if you're interested in hearing more about uh, learning about complexity, then Roland and I in episode four are going to have a conversation about learning about complexity. So we can talk more about that then. Roland, thank you very much indeed. That's been hugely useful. Yes, Mark, always fun to chat. (laughs) (laughs) So that's it. Before we finish, if you found what you heard useful, please do subscribe. As I said, we've got Roland coming up in episode four again. Can I also give you the important job of spreading the word because it may help someone else. And right now, before you forget, please message, email, tweet, slack or otherwise let your mates know about the clock and the cat. Thank you.
1: Hope you listen again. Bye bye.